This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome historian Dave Petrusia. How are you doing today? Doing good. Dave Petrusia is a native of Amsterdam and a resident of Glenville. So far, his uh, resume looks a lot like mine because both those statements are true about me. But David Petrusia has written numerous books on 20th century American history, including a trilogy of volumes, 1920, 1960, 1948, on presidential electoral history. He's also an expert on topics including the presidency of Calvin Coolidge and baseball. And his newest book has a fascinating title. It's another one of his year number titles, 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. Uh, Even though uh, both of them are often associated in history, associating their rise to power is kind of an interesting concept of they being Hitler and FDR. Why were, did you get interested in this? Well, I had done the other three books, you know, exploring presidential history. So it's like, might we continue on that, that same path, but maybe we should do it with a twist. I mean, a lot of those have had confrontations or uh, examinations of, of widely different people or massively important people in American history. 1960 with JFK and Nixon and LBJ and the six presidents who were involved in one way or another in 1920. So it's always good to bring people in that the, your reader would know. And in 1932, we take a look at Hitler in Germany, FDR in the United States of America, and both of them face presidential elections, which are going to propel them in one way or another into power in that year, 1932, and take power in 1933. They both die uh, within weeks of each other in 1945, and there is that thing called World War II intervenes, but also you see uh, their path to power chronologically uh, has some mileposts in common as well in 1928-1930, and both countries are facing the Great Depression. So there are similarities, and there are, of course, massive differences. Mm. But as you say, they, um, the both of them, um, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I believe one of your basic points is that uh, the rise of Hitler and the rise of FDR were hardly foregone conclusions. I mean, it, it, it seems that way now in, in uh, the light of what, is, what happened, in light of history, but as it was unfolding, it was uh, an uncertain matter. Right. Everything that has happened seems inevitable, like both of us ending up in Glenville. I mean, right. would we have predicted that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, um, the unlikely destiny part is, of course, a key part of, of the story. And Hitler is as unlikely as anyone who's ever ridden to power, a high school dropout, a fellow uh, sleeping in the streets of Vienna, living in the equivalent of the Vienna Y YMCA for a while, a bohemian, a, a an artist, uh, eking out a living, painting these little uh, postcards, which would be put for sale to the tourists there. A uh, fellow who ends World War One in the mental ward of a German military hospital, tries to over 
overthrow the German state in 1923. Uh, could have very well have been shot or hung for this. Instead, he's not. He can't even run for president of Germany un- or until 1932. He's not a citizen. He's mm. a stateless person from 1925 on and only becomes a citizen and can run and or even vote for German president until the middle of 1932. So unlikely, even aside from all his policies, FDR has this wonderful upbringing, conversely. He's raised in this great house on the Hudson Valley, beautiful place, loved, has every material advantage you could imagine. Uh, but he's unlikely, too, because people are saying, like Bernard Baruch, he's an amiable boy scout. He, uh, Walter Lippmann, the great columnist, says this is FDR is a person pleasant enough, pleasant enough, but with no great qualifications or reason to become president. People don't know where he stands on the issues. He's a bit shifty on things. You're not sure where he is on prohibition or dealing with Tammany Hall corruption or the League of Nations or even how to deal with the Depression mm-hmm. or government spending. You see some incredibly conservative documents and speeches coming out from the Democrats in 32. There's one that FDR gives in Pittsburgh that is to the right, to the right of Calvin Coolidge. It is so conservative. It hardly presages what's to come. Uh, And there is that matter of polio, Mm -hmm. which he goes to great lengths to disguise from the American people, and even from his associates by minimizing the extent of his paralysis. But it's real, uh, and it's something he has to come. And and for those who, who know the story up front and personal, it's very inspiring. Hmm. Now, I think it's safe to say that most of us in America know more about FDR than we know about Hitler. I don't Maybe that's not completely true, but it's true for me. Uh, and so I know that in 1932, uh, FDR won the election and became president. But with Hitler... I saw a critic who complimented you on following the Byzantine twists and turns of German politics of the day. I mean, what happened for Hitler, actually, in 1932? Well, Germany has seven-year terms for president. They have a parliamentary system which theoretically should put power in their version of Congress, the Reichstag, and then into the chancellor. So think of what happens in in Britain or Canada. Uh, But it's not like that. And the German Constitution, the Weimar Republic Constitution, is touted as the most democratic in the world, and it really has a couple of bombs in it. The president can issue these decrees to short-circuit what the Reichstag is doing. Think executive orders, okay? Mm-hmm. The Reichstag can overturn them, uh, but there's another part of that Constitution, Article 25, which says the president can dissolve the parliament, the Reichstag, at will. So essentially the president, von Hindenburg, can say that the delegates in the Reichstag feeling lucky, punk, And this becomes his ability to essentially rule Germany by decree, and the chancellor no longer is chosen by the parliament. Um, And in in 1932, Hindenburg's term expires. The Nazis run Hitler. 
Uh, it's a four-man race, and Hindenburg just misses in the uh, runoff, and the people say, good, Hitler gets to get beat again, only worse. But he takes to the air uh, in an airplane, which is hot stuff in, and quite daring in 1932, to campaign. It's a very short campaign. He's got to reach a lot of people. The Nazis are essentially banned from the radio, so he can't do that. Uh, and his slogan is, the Nazi slogan is, Hitler over Germany, which means two things, physically over Germany in a plane and ruling over Germany eventually. Interestingly enough, Franklin Roosevelt does sort of the same thing in America. Uh, the tradition had been that you nominate a president or a candidate at a convention, and then he does not give his speech there. You wait a few weeks, a delegation goes to his home, and then he gives the speech at, say, Hyde Park or, or wherever, mm-hmm. uh, and you, you wait this out. FDR breaks with tradition and flies from Albany to Chicago, and this is this is is quite startling to the American people. This is where he gives his New Deal speech. This is where he coins that phrase. But flying is this is only five years after Lindbergh. So FDR makes the voyage. He has his sea legs. He he makes the the flight pretty easily. But one of his sons get airsick on this little mail plane, uh, and it takes seven hours. Seven hours to fly from Albany to Chicago back then. Wow. Now, um, but, but again, back to Hitler. Did he win that election? No. He uh, loses uh, in that second round. But sometimes there is victory in defeat. And he's, his vote total goes way up. And he takes votes from both the extreme nationalist right, think the old sort of monarchists and the Kaiser bunch, mm-hmm. And the communists. Uh, so where is this Hitler wave going to crest? Will it ever crest? Then in July of that year, there are Reichstag elections. Uh, the Nazis had progressed from 12 seats in 1928 to 107 in 1930, making them the second biggest party and jangling up things in Weimar even worse, to 230 in July. They are the biggest party uh, and by logic, Hitler at that point in the parliamentary system should become chancellor. Uh, but also there's a higher logic which says, no, anybody but him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hermann Goering, uh, his number two guy, becomes president of the Reichstag. They create even more mischief uh, in the society. There's more street violence all over the place. But... Because of that street violence and people getting wary of what these Germans, Nazis, are about, they lose two million votes in a November election. And it looks like, to use a phrase from the Munich era, Hitler has missed the bus, that that the tide may finally recede. But the machinations of the Camarilla, the cabal surrounding President Hindenburg, eventually lead to to Hitler becoming... uh, chancellor of germany he's still boxed in he doesn't have all the power but he's going to accumulate it very quickly and on the death of hindenburg in 1934 uh he will move from party leader to chancellor to president to fuhrer back to uh, fdr one thing i do recall i mean correct me if i'm wrong that even after his uh, election he was very 
um, maybe cagey for a while as to what he was going to do? Well, certainly in that election, you're, you're not sure what he's going to do. Uh, but there are intimations that he's going to do big, bold things right after the election. There's this huge interregnum uh, between November 1932 and March 1933. Now it seems like forever for a president to take power in January, but back then it was you had to wait until March. And that period between November and March, the banks really start collapsing in America. And the Depression doesn't start and become full-blown in October 1929. It doesn't just go, boom, and that's it. We find ourselves in the pit. Uh, it, it devolves in stages. I think of it as like an evil slinky going down the stairs, one level <laughs> at another into some economic hell. And about the last level of that is, is this banking crisis in late 1932, which Hoover wants to do something about. He wants to close the banks, but he's not sure if it's legal. It's, it's kind of dicey, a bank holiday, so people can sort things out and then start the old banks uh, up with the safe ones. And he asked Roosevelt for his support on that, and Roosevelt goes into a stall. He even does something which is m very akin to the dog ate my homework. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, my secretary lost that uh, letter, Herbert. Uh, you know, <laughs> but he doesn't want to sign on to any cooperation with Hoover. He doesn't want to own any part of the depression. Uh, he wants to take everything over after Hoover is gone and do it his way, even if his way is kind of similar to what Hoover was going to do. In fact, very similar. Back to Germany, and, and pardon me for getting this out of sync, I, which I believe it is, but when was the Reichstag burned, or, and how does that figure in, in this Early tale? 1933, and that period between Hitler being named chairman and Hindenburg dying are marked by two big events which are going to consolidate Hitler's power. One is very shortly, very shortly after he takes power, Hitler, uh, the Reichstag uh, building catches on fire, and it's blamed on a Dutch communist. And Hitler uses this as an excuse to ban the German Communist Party. It's important to note that late in 1932, the Nazis and the communists combined had the majority of the German popular vote. The majority of the German people were voting for totalitarian systems, not just dictatorial, not just authoritarian, totalitarian. And then when you add in these nationalists, the great majority of the people were rejecting democracy. And when Hitler throws the communists out of the Reichstag, then he really has a workable majority there. There's an enabling act passed which says basically do what you want, uh, and then in 1934, with rumblings within the Nazi party uh, going on with the SA, the stormtroopers, wanting to sort of supplant the army uh, as the military force of Germany, and Hitler being very wary of that, and certainly the army being very wary of that, and the more rational nationalist elements in the country, Hitler 
essentially murders a couple hundred of his old associates and anyone who might cause some trouble with him. And Hindenburg does not bat an eye. And a lot of the German people do not bat an eye. And before you know it, you're straight on the, on the road to uh, hell in World War II. Hmm. Now, again, back in uh, in the United States, uh, FDR uh, takes office in March of 1933, and um, does he, I mean, anything sim- at all similar to what happened in Germany after that? He has, um, he has his problems with, there, there are, he breaks, or a lot of people around him are going to break with him. His vice president, John Nance Gardner, is going to break with him when he wants a, a third term. And some of his early advisors, like brain truster Raymond Moley, uh, jump ship. And two very radical people. I guess the um, as Ernst Röhm <laughs> is to Hitler. There's a couple of guys in 1932 who are supporters of Franklin Roosevelt, who are radical members of the Democratic Party, who are going to break with FDR before 1936. And they are Father Charles Coughlin, mm. the radio priest out of Detroit. He has a big national network, and he is enthusiastically for Franklin Roosevelt, just loves him. And there's a guy out of Louisiana who's just become a member of the United States Senate named Huey Long, the Kingfish. Mm-hmm. King, he's a lot more skeptical of Franklin Roosevelt. He just sees him as some rich guy who's, you know, going to become president and Long will be along for the ride. But by the midpoint of Roosevelt's first term, He's completely dissatisfied that Roosevelt has not gone far enough. Roosevelt's going to respond with with a, a sort of second wave of New Deal programs. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of the more important ones, because Long is going to challenge him for uh, the presidency in 1936 with the Share Our Wealth program, Every Man a King. But Long is assassinated, no connection to Roosevelt. Uh, and Baton Rouge uh, a year before the election. Hmm. And pardon my ignorance, you said, think uh, the German, was it Ernst Röhm? Who was that, Rome, or have you explained oh, Ernst that? Ernst Röhm uh, is the, uh, or was, the head of the stormtroopers uh, under Hitler. Uh, when the stormtroopers were out there battling in the streets in the last days of the Weimar Republic uh, against the uh, communist and the socialist, the nationalists, uh, all the major political parties would have these sort of paramilitary uh, groups, uh, and they would protect their own, you know, ostensibly the idea was to protect their own rallies from violence, but uh, they soon move out into the streets, and there's a bloody Sunday uh, in the middle of 1932 in the suburbs of Hamburg, uh, which kills uh, like 16 people. Uh, and then there's violence all that day against uh, uh, people all over Germany. And there's a particularly brutal murder in the latter part of the year in Silesia, in eastern Germany, where a bunch of these stormtroopers invade the home of a Polish communist uh, coal miner, beat him to death, knife him to death, hit him with pool cues and clubs, all in front of his own mother. These guys are put on trial, they're quickly convicted. 
and Hitler says, "I will, I will not uh, betray these these fighters for freedom," and and the people in Germany say, "Whoa, what is this guy really about?" And that case is one of the things which leads to the Nazis losing two million votes in in November and looking like they they might not take power, but the betrayal aspect of that sub subtitle of the book kicks in and and the politicians uh at the height of the uh or at the top of power at Weimar are busy betraying themselves and when they do that they're the way they're going to do it is to use Hitler to settle old scores among themselves and that's how he eventually takes that chancellorship late in January 1933. David Petrugia is with us. His newest book, 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. I, not from the material about you, but I read a, a quote from um, per, you know, someone who uh, talked about uh, FDR's knowledge of Hitler. And this comes later than what you're talking about, but that uh, FDR was somewhat conversant in German, and so it, he did have an appreciation as the 30s went on about how effective Hitler was as a speaker. And you do you address that. I mean, he really was this uh, mesmerizing He's a speaker. Rock star guy. His, his events are like rock concerts uh, in terms of a, a political concert. Uh, Hitler's uh, both. Hitler and FDR spend part of their childhood in Germany. Hitler across the river because his father was an Austrian customs official. So at one point he's actually stationed across the river in Germany. And Franklin Roosevelt spends his summers, four summers in Germany, when his father is vacationing there, his father being very wealthy and going to the spas for his health, taking the water. Roosevelt spend until Roosevelt goes to Groton very late in his childhood he spends more time in german schools than american schools okay because roosevelt was homeschooled okay attention homeschoolers out there fdr was homeschooled um and so he knows german he knows the germans Hitler, of course, falls in love with Germany. Roosevelt, not crazy about what he's seen there and the people. He just doesn't take a, a liking to them. But he, I'm told when I was speaking in Hyde Park a few weeks ago uh, at the Roosevelt Library that they had come across Hitler's version or Roosevelt's copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And it was uh. annotated. They had little FDR notes in the margins. And one of the notes was, you know, that they've essentially taken all the good, I mean bad, parts of Mein Kampf out of this American edition. Okay? And and the, the questions arise, now how would Roosevelt know this? Okay? Right. Had Roosevelt, because he knew German, gotten a hold of a German copy of Mein Kampf even before Hitler took power? and read it, and so he could know that the anti-Semitic and particularly violent and aggressive portions of, of this edition had been removed? It's a very interesting question, and it and shows that Roosevelt was more on top of things than people like Lichtman and Baruch were giving him credit for. 
as George W. Bush would say, he was misunderestimated, both uh, uh, putting it inelegantly, uh, unlikely destiny, FDR and Hitler were both misunderestimated. What did Hitler think of FDR? Oh, he had, he had no respect for him at all. Uh, and, and, and less respect, I think, for Churchill, who he thought was just a drunk uh, and, and a tool of uh, Jewish interests. Uh, and he had very little. There are a couple of fellows in the book who move back and forth in their careers between the United States and Germany. They're German nationals, they're Nazis. There's a guy named Ernst Putzi Hausstangel who knew. FDR at the Harvard Club and then became a press aide for Hitler, uh, and a guy named Kurt Ludicky, who a uh, very shadowy figure, who an early supporter of Hitler. And both of them talk about trying to convince Hitler, tell Hitler how powerful America is, you, that you, you just, mein Fuhrer, you just cannot understand how big this and vast this country is and don't cross them and hitler hitler is fixated on gangsters like al capone and prohibition and how bad jazz is and he just never gets the idea of america david petruja uh, joining us his book uh, his latest uh, book 1932 the rise of hitler and fdr we're getting uh, uh, close to the end of the podcast it's always a pleasure having you on uh, david when you come out with another another year you're the man of the years and <laughs> the, the year this time 1932 i do and maybe kind of some i don't know if it's personal stuff but uh, i note um i think i saw this on twitter you may that you did one of your first uh, book signings, or maybe your first book signing, down in Cooperstown. And I was wondering about that, but uh, come to think of it, uh, you write a lot about baseball. Yes, I used to do, uh, I was uh, president of the society, national president of the Society for American Baseball Research, and I was co-editor and managing editor of Total Baseball, which was the official encyclopedia of Major League Baseball. And I had actually once spoken at the Hall of Fame. Uh, and did a co-authored a book with uh, Ted Williams, a uh, pictorial autobiography of uh, his. Uh, but that was a that was an interesting event down in Cooperstown, and it's always uh, it's always great to uh, to visit such a beautiful town like that. I also uh, saw uh, Bill Buell's. Uh, a story about you in the uh, Daily Gazette, which was in the Q&A format. Quest, and he asked you, what's your average work day like? And it, you say, unlike many writers, you do things a little backwards? Yes, I think uh, I, I, I keep reading how all these authors get up early and, and write like hell until like 11 o'clock, and then they take the rest of the day off doing stuff. And I roll out of bed and sort of catch up on every other thing I can, you know, all my errands and correspondence and clear my brain out of all that stuff. Uh, uh, and then I, I usually don't start until late morning, and then I keep going and, you know, break for uh, dinner and uh, going out at, at some point late afternoon, maybe, and then work until 9 or 10 at night. Mm. And another thing that, that Bill asked you about, which I thought was interesting, is that um, you, you live here in the upstate New York, and you don't travel much for your research. 
Um, no, the uh, internet has made uh, has actually given you an embarrassment of riches as a historian. Uh, you can look up so much now without even leaving your your computer screen. But also that the uh, academic libraries in this area, particularly unions, union is so convenient to me and has such a great collection of works. And I've found also Skidmore and the State University uh, of New Mm -hmm. York at Albany to be tremendously helpful as well. Uh, They've got, uh, being longstanding institutions, they got a lot of books a long time ago, and thank God they haven't thrown them out. Well, David, we're just uh, out of time. I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. David Petrugia, author of 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.